I'll Be Home for Christmas. That's a song that's been around for a while. It was first recorded in 1943. Here's a trivia question. Who was the first recording artist that recorded that song? Became a big hit. Nobody here is old enough to remember that? Come on, somebody. Dave, you know? Bing, 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 Bing Crosby. 1943. You were a teenager back then, right, Dave? Yeah. So, so remembering the year, it's, it was written from the perspective of a soldier in World War II, and he's anticipating to be home for Christmas, get everything ready. He wants snow. That's going to be a little challenging here in Florida. Mistletoe, presents around the tree. And it ends kind of on a melancholy note. He says, I'll be home for Christmas, if only in my dreams. So if there is an association with Christmas that's uh, most common, it's probably home. We think of home for Christmas. And a lot of times, what we think about when we picture that home, you might call it the Hallmark Christmas movie home. I've got a, I got a picture. So here it is. This, is. this is the home for Christmas. This is what we all like to think of ourselves. Everybody's pretty good looking, even Grammy and Papa there. Got a nice tree. It's well decorated. The house looks good. It's communicating. We're all healthy. We're all happy. We're all prosperous. Everything is good and everything is right. Maybe you get a card like this in the mail from one of your friends. Got this picture on it or something similar and giving you the highlight reel. Or you see it on Facebook. And then we wonder. So we look at a picture like this and we look at that and then we look at our family and we say, I'm stuck with these guys because your Christmas picture probably looks more like this. The redneck (laughs) home for Christmas. But everybody does. I just want to assure you this morning, nobody gets the Hallmark movie Christmas home. There is no perfect home, and there may be windows of time where everybody's healthy and prosperous and happy, but there's, that only lasts a really short time. There's always challenges that people deal with. And it was funny, as I was developing the sermons for this series, Home for Christmas, it struck me, and I don't know if you ever thought of this before, in the original Christmas narrative, nobody was home for Christmas. You think about that? Mary and Joseph were not home The angels weren't home, the magi weren't home, the shepherds weren't home, and even Jesus was not home for Christmas. However, they all brought something to the table. Each one of those characters in the narrative brought something to the table and created a Christmas home, what we would call really a Christian home. So the emphasis that I want to have throughout this series, we're going to to look at each one as pieces of the story and draw something by which we can incorporate into our characters a Christian home. When I say, be home for Christmas, I mean it in the sense of, I want to be in my character those things that create a Christian home. Like in golf, you want to be the ball? Well, at Christmas time, we want to be the home. And we're going to start today with Mary and Joseph. Just see, what is it that they contribute that we can learn about being a Christian home. And what I want to zero in on, because we could probably say a lot of things about Mary and Joseph, I just want to zero in on one, and that is the aspect of obedience. Obedience. So both Joseph and Mary had angels appear to them and make revelations from God. This did not happen simultaneously, did it? There's a chronology there. Have you ever wondered, have you ever thought about this? Who received the first angelic vision? Was it Joseph or was it Mary? You may want to think about this for a second. 
who received the first, who got the, the angelic visit first? Was it Joseph or was it Mary? I mean, it's 50-50. And I didn't, I didn't realize this until I researched and wrote the sermon this past week, but you're right. Whoever said Mary, it was Mary. Mary gets the first visit from the angel. The angel says, the Holy Spirit's going to overshadow you. You're going to have a child. It's going to, the child's going to be the son of God. And Mary's response in Luke chapter 1, this is in that long passage, verse 26 through 38, but I'll just read her response. I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. It's a response of obedience. May it be to me as you have said. Obedience from Mary. So a little while later, maybe three months or so, an angel appears to Joseph, goes over the same basic territory, says you are to marry Mary, you are to adopt Jesus as your son and raise him. And then we have Joseph's response, Matthew 1, 24. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. Both obedient responses. So the overarching thing today is the Christian home is an obedient home. That's what we learn from them. In a general sense, it's an obedient home. And obedience just comes with the territory of discipleship, does it not? This is part of the very definition of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18. Go and make disciples. How do you do that? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then teaching them to do what? Obey everything that I've commanded you. I remember talking to someone years ago about family and how you do family. He said, basically, the secret to having a, a great Christian family is to live as an obedient Christian in your home, obeying the commands of God. Steve, I'm saved by grace, through faith, not by works of the law, not by obeying God's commandments. That's right. We are saved by grace. But that does not negate our obligation to obey God's commandments. It never will. We are creatures of the Creator God. He has created us. By virtue of that, we obey Him. Our two, obey Him. If you use the one-year Bible for your devotions, as I do this past week, you were in 1 John in the New Testament. We get this in 1 John 2, 3. We can be sure that we know Him if we obey His commandments. And if someone claims, I know God, but doesn't obey God's commandments, that person is a liar and is not living in the truth. But those who obey God's word, truly show how completely they love him. So Holy Spirit help us in that. It, he does, but he's not doing it for us. He's doing it in cooperation with us. We are obedient to God's commands. How does he know we love him? How does he know we care? By obeying his commandments. All right. Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. If we are obedient, even if we are the only one in the family to obey, and everybody else is not even a Christian, everybody else is a pagan, even if I as a husband, I'm the only Christian, I'm obeying God's commands, it's like flipping on a light in a dark room. Or if the wife, if there's a wife in a family and she's the only one who's obeying God's commands, it's going to change the dynamic in that family. Or if there's a child who is in a family, and they're the, that child is the only Christian in the whole family. Just by being an obedient Christian, it will change the dynamic in that family. I'm not saying everybody in the family is therefore going to become a Christian. I'm not saying that at all. But it will change the dynamic. It has to. You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that can't be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the what? In the house. 
In whose house? In your house. My house. In the same way, let your good deeds, that's your obedience, shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. You don't need anybody's permission to be the obedient Christian in your home or in my home. It'll just change everything. Even if it's a broken home, even if it's where you're going through a divorce in that home, being an obedient Christian in that home will change how that process works itself out. And if it's, just, if it's not just one person who's being an obedient Christian in a home, but everybody in the family is obeying God's commands, it's not like just turning on one light bulb, it's lighting up the whole house. It, that's like Christmas. When everybody is obeying God's commands in a, in a family, it's like the, plant, the Terra Plantation down here on, on State Road 60. Everything lights up under those circumstances. Okay, so that's just the general idea of what obedience to God's commands can do in a family. But I do want to get a little more specific. I want to drill down and look at Joseph and Mary and get a takeaway from them specifically. What do we learn about family obedience from Joseph? I'm going to call this protective love from Joseph. Protective love. Matthew 1.20, Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. First century marriage came in two stages. You had the betrothal, and then you had the consummation of the marriage. Usually, this was separated by a year or two years. Betrothal, roughly equivalent to what we call an engagement, but much more serious. The vows were exchanged at betrothal. Right? Then you have the interim before the actual marriage. But if there was to be an abrogation of those vows... It would require a divorce. So when Joseph found out that during this betrothal period, Mary had become pregnant, he was going to divorce her, the narrative said. He was going to quietly divorce her. <clears throat> Again, I don't know if you've ever thought about that before, but the way I read that, the implication is it almost has to be. There's, there's one other way of understanding it, but I'm not even going to go there because I don't think it works, but you can ask me about it afterwards. You pretty much have to conclude that Joseph did not believe Mary's account of the angelic appearance and revelation to her and that the child was from the Holy Spirit. She, she shared that with Joseph. Remember, she got the angelic visit first. And Joseph did not believe her. So he was going to divorce her. And that's when a second visit comes, and this one to Joseph, and said, no, Joseph, you're, you're wrong here. She's telling the truth. You are to marry her, and you are to adopt Jesus and raise him as your own. Mary was a woman who was experiencing stigma in her life because of this. Coming pregnant, not yet married. And in that culture, at that time, it was a serious stigma, much more so in our culture and time. This was very serious. If Joseph had not believed her story about the Holy Spirit and the virgin conception and given some credit, nothing like that had ever happened before, but if he did not believe her story, who else is going to believe her? Nobody. And nobody did. We know for a fact that the children they had later on, this would be Jesus' kind of stepbrothers and stepsisters, they did not believe Mary's story, her own children. We know that. 
We know her neighbors in Nazareth did not believe that story. We know that. She, was, she had a stigma. And so what Joseph had to offer her was marriage, respectability, provision, and protection. And that's what he did. He married her and he loved her and gave her protection. The Bible says in Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Among other things, that love includes protection. 1 Corinthians 13.7, love always protects. Malachi 2.16, the man who hates and divorces his wife does violence to the one he should protect. Again, this idea that a husband is to offer protection for his wife. And of course, that's physical and it's material protection. But guys, it's also emotional, psychological, spiritual protection. Joseph afforded all of this to Mary. We should afford this to our wives. Here's a thought. I just want to make, here's, here's a little a, a, a technique that we guys need to move away from. And that is correcting our wives in public. Now, I will say, I have majored in this in the past. If my wife was saying something and she, she varied in some little detail, in whatever story she was telling, that's my opportunity to jump in there and correct the record. No, it wasn't mauve, it was magenta. It wasn't a honeybee, it was a bumblebee. It wasn't on a Monday back in 1968, it was on a Tuesday in 1969. Who cares? Nobody cares. Isn't that irritating when you're listening to some married couple and they go back and forth and all of a sudden they're correcting each other and it's like, who cares? All right, I have done this in the past. That Guys, let's repent of that and just stop doing that. I, I like to listen to other preachers, and one of my favorites is Elliot Blount. This is Scott and Peggy's son, Elliot Blount. He doesn't preach all the time up there in Jacksonville, but on occasion he does, and when he does, I listen to his sermons. And he said something recently, I'm going to pass this on to you, that I thought was a gem. He said, men, we don't need to fight with our wives. We need to fight for our wives. Don't fight with your spouse. Fight for your spouse. In other words, we position ourselves. We sacrifice and move heaven and earth to give her a win. If we're having a discussion, if we're having an argument, affirm her, help her to win, give her a victory. If she lies about it, you swear to it. Right? When she wins, you win. But we want to affirm our wives and encourage our wives and protect our wives in that way. Okay. That will revolutionize your home. You're laughing, but that will revolutionize a home right there. Let's turn to Mary. What can we learn from Mary? I'm going to call this gracious respect in a home. Gracious respect. The wife must respect her husband, Ephesians 5.33. Now, right off the bat, I see a challenge for Mary in this. She's, she's to marry Joseph, and she's to afford him love and respect. But there's this issue that Joseph did not believe her. He did not trust her. He thought she was wrong, and he was, but he was the one who wound up being wrong. And now she's to marry him, so it's going to take grace on her part to give him the love and respect that's required of a wife dealing with her husband. He's, he's made a big mistake here. And grace is treating someone better than they deserve to be treated. In fact, truly, grace is treating someone the opposite of how they deserve to be treated and what they've earned. 
but this is what spouses need from each other in a marriage. And I know it goes both ways, but right now I'm talking about wives for their husbands. And when Mary did this for Joseph, it gave him the opportunity as a husband, at least the opportunity to become what she was giving him credit for being, a good, godly husband and righteous man, to become that. If you think about it, this is how God treats us. We're saved by grace. What does that mean? That means God gives us credit for things that we're not. The Bible says, the Bible calls, when you become a Christian, God says, you are righteous, you are holy, you are blameless. Are you really in your condition, righteous, holy, and blameless? No. But God gives us credit for that. He calls us that. And then, forgetting what's behind, we press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of us. Righteousness, holiness, blamelessness. We're becoming what God has already given us credit for being. This is how it works in a Christian family. We give each other credit, and it gives the spouse the opportunity to become that. E.V. Hill, was a, a, he is a preacher who lost his wife Jane to cancer a few years ago. Dr. Hill spoke about Jane. He preached her funeral and described the way she made him a better man. As a struggling young preacher, E.V. had trouble earning a living that led him to invest the family's scarce resources over his wife Jane's objections in the purchase of a service station. Eventually, the station went broke, and Evie lost his shirt in the deal. The male ego is surprisingly fragile, especially during times of failure and embarrassment. That's why Evie needed to hear her say, I still believe in you. And that is precisely the message she conveyed to him. Shortly after the fiasco with the service station, Evie came home one night. He found the house dark. When he opened the door, he saw that Jane had prepared a candlelight dinner for two. And she said, we're going to eat by candlelight tonight. Evie thought that was a great idea, went into the bathroom to wash his hands and tried unsuccessfully to turn on the light. Still dark. The young preacher went back to the dining room. He asked Jane why the electricity was off and she began to cry. She said, you have worked so hard and we're trying, but it's pretty tough. I don't have quite enough money to pay the light bill. I really didn't want you to know about it, so I thought we would just eat by candlelight. Dr. Hill described his wife's words with intense emotion. She could have said, I've never been in this situation before. I was raised in the home of Dr. Carruthers, and we never had our lights cut off. She could have broken my spirit. She could have ruined me. She could have demoralized me. But instead, she said, somehow or another, we'll get the lights on. But let's eat tonight by candlelight. Love and respect by grace. Now, one more thought, because not everybody here is married today. In fact, about half the people in America are not married, just either never married or divorced or widowed. And I want to say something to singles, just briefly. And there is a single in the Christmas narrative. There's a single person. Uh, Matthew 1.25, uh, Mary gave birth to a son, and Joseph gave him the name Jesus. And later on in Luke 2, Jesus said, didn't you know that I must be about my father's business? And then Jesus went down to Nazareth with his parents and was obedient to them. 
Jesus is the single in the story, and of course, he never married or had children, but he followed God with single-minded obedience, single-minded. And I mean that in both its ways, single-minded as a single person and single-minded with a specific focus on obeying God. Jesus learned obedience, the Bible says, from the things that he suffered. Being a single person in the kingdom of God does not make someone a second-class citizen. Not everybody, frankly, is called to marriage. Now, you might say most people are but certainly not everyone is. And in some senses, it, it is an advantage. The Bible says it is, it is an advantage to be a single person pursuing God, and there are opportunities to obey Him in ways that married people cannot. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 32. An unmarried man can spend his time doing the Lord's work and thinking about how to please him. But a married man has to think about his earthly responsibilities and how to please his wife. His interests are divided. And in the same way, a woman who is no longer married or has never been married can be devoted to the Lord and holy in body and in spirit. But a married woman has to think about her earthly responsibilities and how to please her husband. You understand what he's saying there, right? Later on this month, the, the, the staff here at the church, at least the, the ministers, the other three ministers and myself, our, us and our wives are going to get together and have a dinner. And so I, I texted out to the other three guys the suggested restaurant and time for the dinner, RSVP. Every single one of them said, I'm going to have to get back to you on that. What were they doing? They're checking with their wives. They're checking with their wives. And to be honest, I had to check with my wife before I sent out the original text. Because that's just the way it is. We've got to check with our wives. We've got to check with our husbands. There's an event. There's something we want to go to. I've got to check with my wife. I've got to check with my husband. But Paul is saying, you know, a single person doesn't have to do that. They can be single-mindedly devoted to God. And wherever God calls them to go, they don't have to worry about those things. There are advantages and disadvantages, I understand. But I'm just saying. So, even though Jesus was single, he was obedient to God. And even though he was single, he still had a family, did he not? Jesus chose his family. He created a family. He put a family together. He chose men, and he chose women, and he chose marrieds, and he chose singles, and he created a family. And that's reflected in what we have in a local church today. It's a family that God has drawn together. And there are men, women, marrieds, and singles. I like Wesley Hill. Uh, uh, read a couple of his books. He's a professor in Bible college. He is a single man. He has a blog. He lives, he actually lives with another family in the church that he belongs to, and they're part of his family. Let me read you an excerpt from a blog he wrote recently. He said, Yesterday, my friend and housemate, Aiden's first Sunday to serve as the minister at a new church. It was the first Sunday. I attended the service along with Melanie, Aiden's wife, and their daughter, my goddaughter, Felicity, sitting in a pew near the front and helping Mel with a fidgety two-year-old. During the announcements, Aiden introduced himself to the congregation and then pointed to our pew. This is my family, he said. He asked Mel and Felicity to stand up and said, Mel is my wife, Felicity is my daughter. And then he indicated that I should stand too. He said, this is our friend, Wes. We live in Christian community. Wes shares our home and is Felicity's godfather. When I told another friend about what Aiden did, he replied that it was a public declaration that we all belong together, precisely. 
People sometimes ask me what I envision when I say we need more public recognition and honor for friendship, thicker practices of belonging and kinship with one another, and even vows to seal those things. I don't want to say my particular form of belonging is the best one, but what my friend Aiden said and did yesterday is the kind of thing I have in mind. I'd like us to close this morning by singing together a cappella, I'll Be Home for Christmas. I'll be home. Wait a minute, that's wrong. I'll be, that's wrong. I've got the song off of my head. Let's see, who's going to help me out? For Christmas, you can plan on me. So low. Well, no, we'll, we'll keep going. Please, please, please. <laughs> All right. Wow. All right, keep going. And, and presents on the tree. Christmas Eve will find me where the love light gleams. I'll be home for Christmas if only in my dreams. Thank you. Come see me afterwards. You got a good voice. I think we're going to get you on the praise team. Uh, but thank you very much. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for Mary and Joseph and what they can teach us about obedience. How precious obedience is to you and what a difference it can make in a home and in a church. And we thank you, Lord, that we are, every person here who's a part of this church congregation is home for Christmas. And we have our family of origin and our biological families and there are all kinds of challenges there. Lord, when we come together here, it's not our blood that joins us together. It's the blood of Christ. And it is the spirit of love and the Holy Spirit that makes us a family. And we, we thank you and praise you for that blessing today. In Jesus' name, amen.